0: There's a whole cottage industry of professional historians who fact-check the news of the day. This was really big during the Trump era, especially. Sometimes that's really good because historians are people who are trained to think critically about historical questions, to answer them with nuance. But also, it can mean that the profession gets sucked into the now.
1: You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, a senior editor at The New Yorker. James Sweet is a professor of African history and the former president of the American Historical Association. He's a big deal in his world, but he's not the kind of person who you would usually hear about on a politics podcast. And that's exactly how Sweet likes it. He wrote an essay last year arguing that historians have become compromised by politics, that they use it as a jumping off point for all of their work and as a way to go viral on Twitter. Sweets' essay was wildly controversial, sparking a debate among academics about the role of politics in history and vice versa. This discussion has recently become a national one, as politicians like Governor Ron DeSantis have vowed to remove all traces of wokeness from school curricula. Today you'll hear from Emma Green, who has written a story for NewYorker.com titled The Right Side of History, about Sweets' essay and about how historians should respond to the urgency of this current political moment. So let's you know, sort of like start from the from the beginning. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell our audience, you know, who exactly James Sweet is and why they should care about him. You know, why does he matter outside of um, academic circles?
0: So James Sweet, he goes by Jim is the former president of the American Historical Association. This is the largest body of historians in America. He works at UW, Wisconsin. He is a historian, focuses on histories of the African diaspora in Latin America. And, you know, I think generally, if not for a moment of virality on the Internet, we wouldn't care about him. But he wrote an essay last fall that got published and blew up on the Internet. It was on television. It was on The New York Times and it was all over Twitter. And the basic contention of the article was what should history scholarship look like and what should it be used for in these political times so he inserted himself right into the middle of a huge debate and got a lot of feedback so why was this debate so controversial I mean where did he
1: land and how did people respond to his conclusions
0: Jim wrote an essay that was trying to make a defense of a traditional way of doing history, following the evidence where it leads, relying on traditional methods like using archives to build an evidentiary case for stories of history. And he questioned very gently the way that historians focus on certain questions, perhaps overly much, race, class, gender, nationalism, colonialism. What's interesting is that this was a big theme in his own work. This is something that he does take seriously, race, racism, slavery. But he was making the case that there are some scholars within academic history who Sort of short circuit the process. They start with the conclusion that they want to come to, or they start with the social justice problem that they wish to address, and then rally evidence to support their case to try to further a political agenda. And a lot of people in academic history took issue with this, both because Jim Sweet was kind of accusing them of doing bad history, but also because they thought he missed the point about what history should be used for and how academic history can have relevance in a moment in american life when our political questions our questions of identity are pressing and feel really urgent how does um i guess how does how do these conversations about you know sort of what is history for and
1: what is the right way to you know go about doing it and studying it i mean how does this conversation that sweet has sort of kicked off how does that relate to what we've been seeing in you know Florida with Governor DeSantis and you know the changes to the AP African American Studies curriculum. Like, are these are these conversations um, connected at all, or are they like completely different?
0: Absolutely, you see every day in the news cycle and online that history is rallied by both the left and the right as sort of the ultimate proof test of whatever political point they want to make, whatever agenda they want to enact. We've seen this really starkly in Florida, as you gestured out with Governor Ron DeSantis, unveiling a whole new agenda around how history is taught in Florida classrooms. The Florida state government put a stop to a new AP African-American studies course because they didn't like the emphasis on intersectionality and the Black Lives Matter movement. They thought there was too much contemporary issue uh, woven into the course instead of it just being what they would call straightforward history, whatever that is. You know, you see the way that history can be weaponized for political purposes and it's interesting because academics feel like they need to get into the fight. They have to get into the ring because they have real knowledge that can be useful when Ron DeSantis is talking about African-American history, for example. And Jim Sweet, I think, feels a little hesitant about that. And he's not the only one. Heard from a lot of historians who felt some hesitation about the way that scholarship and academic history gets tossed into this spin cycle of the news cycle and the culture wars and some caution about how academics should join in the fray. Yeah, you said something interesting, which I'd like to talk about more, which is
1: just the way in which um, people who have expertise nowadays feel as though they almost have like a moral obligation to weigh in. I feel like this is something that we saw during the pandemic. I mean, you had, you know, Trump saying various things about COVID. And I feel like there are like a lot of scientists who would sort of like clap back on Twitter and say, like, actually, that's like, you know, the completely wrong thing to do. Just it seems like there's sort of a trend of politicians um, just making these like sort of blanket statements about how science should work or how education should look. And then you have, you know, actual scientists or actual educators coming in and saying, no, you shouldn't listen to them. This is the way to do it. And I'm wondering if like you could just talk a little bit more about how this trend has actually sort of like played out on social media and whether you think it's actually you know helped in terms of correcting the record or whether you know it's just sort of like open things up for everyone to say that they're an expert and that they they know better
0: i think we're in this ironic time because on the one hand what you're describing is true there are all these big issues There are ways for experts to disseminate their knowledge to people more directly than ever before in history, Twitter, Facebook, whatever it might be. And yet, we're also in an age when people don't naturally trust experts. They don't naturally trust the historian from Yale. They don't naturally trust the expert from the CDC. And so there's, I think, this escalating sense of urgency for people who have a lot of knowledge, whether it's about history or something else, to want to throw themselves into the fight. But also, they aren't necessarily believed, they're contradicted, so they feel even more urgently the need to prove that their history is the right history. But there's another side of this, too. I think within the world of history, something that I've been writing about because of this piece, there are a lot of debates that echo debates all over the academy, which is, have we become too insular? Have we become too uh, uniform in the way that we think? Are we too focused on particular lenses and ways of digesting history that make people not trust us because they don't actually think that we're doing history based on evidence? There was one person who wrote into Jim Sweet after his essay who identified themselves as an academic who works on an African-American studies journal. And they said that the kinds of narrowness that Jim Sweet identified, it made them doubt the worth of history and the humanities in general. And that person wasn't the only one. There are a lot of people within academic history and certainly outside of that world who question the insularity or the tunnel vision of academic historians. And I think that just contributes to this escalation problem that we were talking about before. If people don't trust historians or some other category of experts to be offering knowledge and guidance that's based on a fair evaluation of evidence that's actually real knowledge, then they're going to go look for other sources of information, um, it leads to this kind of fractured feeling in our landscape. What is history? I don't know. Hard to establish. When you talk about historians, you know,
1: sort of having this um, kind of like internal conversation within the field with, you know, Jim Sweet about the field being too insular and narrow-minded, I mean, is that all just sort of a euphemism for our field has become too progressive or too woke? Is I mean, is it something that like cuts in both directions? Like, are they concerned about historians looking at, history through sort of like a um, knee-jerk conservative lens or is this all like a critique of liberals?
0: Depending on who you're talking to, you might find historians who would argue that the establishment of academic history is fundamentally conservative. It is stewarded by people in these halls of power, you know, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, by men mostly and white men mostly who are really unwilling to reevaluate how they do history. So that argument is definitely there. I talked to a scholar at Yale who was describing how she feels that new questions or new frameworks, like, for example, thinking about the history of policing in the United mm-hmm. States through a historical lens, that doesn't get a fair shake at all within the history establishment. And she very much attributes that to a kind of elite conservative consensus, a hoarding of power within academic history that prevents there from being new ways of thinking on what we would describe as the left. But I think from the other perspective, this would probably be someone like Jim Sweet. Certainly, you could simplify the argument to say he thinks academic history has become too woke, too focused on social justice as that first port of entry for thinking about the questions you want to ask and how you want to answer them. And certainly I think people like Jim Sweet are concerned that academic historians are too involved in trying to adjudicate the political questions of the day through the news cycle, through determining policy, through writing books that come to really intense conclusions about what change historians wish to see in the world. He doesn't necessarily believe that that is the purpose that academic history should serve. So
1: what are some specific examples that he brings up in his essay of um, people doing this kind of narrow minded, maybe overly woke history? Like is he talking about specific figures in the field or specific
0: works? So Jim Sweet's essay is Perhaps the least interesting part of this whole debate about history. And that's in part because the essay didn't necessarily get into details about specific people or schools of thought or books that he thought were evidence of this. I, I think there were two really interesting examples, though, that did come up in his essay that speak to something broader. The first was the 1619 Project, which has dominated conversations about how we as Americans should think about the role of history in American life. This is obviously the project by the New York Times that reevaluates America's founding through the lens of slavery. And he was in some ways battling with the 1619 Project in his essay. He's actually written about it quite a bit. And a lot of academic historians have battled with the 1619 Project, too, because they feel like it's the most public example of a kind of popular narrative of history through a very specific lens of race and slavery that maybe from an academic perspective has some... Holes or some things that aren't as complete as an academic historian might like but nonetheless has been So much more widely influential than anything any of these people have written pretty much so You know, there's this example from popular history that for Jim Sweet came to stand in for some of the problems of academic history, even though it's popular history. The other interesting thing that came up in my reporting was an experience that Jim Sweet had with a student of his named Jessica Krug, who later went on to work at George Washington University. He was her dissertation advisor. She did African history as well. And it later came out long after Jim Sweet had stopped really being in touch with her that she had been masquerading as a Black and Latina woman and that she was actually a white woman from the Midwest and had used those identities potentially to her benefit throughout her academic career. And I talked to Jim a lot about this specific point because it seemed to me that the coincidence of having been her advisor And not only working with her and being a little suspicious of the way she used evidence, but later finding out that she had been lying about her identity, that that might be in the back of his head as he was thinking about all of this. And I I think that's probably true. He admitted that that might have shaped the way that he thinks about the field. And that just goes to show that, you know, sometimes these big arguments that are about abstract questions can be actually quite specific and particular. And people's opinions can get shaped in really strong ways for reasons that actually are hidden and don't have anything to do with the abstract ideas, but rather the coincidence of their life. And so just to clarify, I mean, it doesn't seem like I'm um, like thinking about Jessica Krug.
1: What sort of issues did Sweet have with like, the way she approached scholarship? I guess I'm just trying to figure out how to put these two things, which seem, you know, very distinct, how to think about them together and how to think about them in the context of Sweet's essay.
0: Sweet would only tell me a little bit about his relationship with Krug, I think because he didn't want to speak ill of her. Mm. But he did say that she would turn in writing that he thought was argued on a thin basis. The evidence was there, but it wasn't as robust as he would have liked. And he thought that her arguments ultimately served a political agenda. She had a particular conclusion or vision that she believed in. And she tried to use the evidence to support that conclusion. I think just reading between the lines, the connection between that concern about her history and the masquerade, the racial masquerade, potentially is a sense of cynicism that one wants to use a certain identity or is invested in a set of identities and wants to use those for political ends or to make a certain political impression on people, when in fact, those don't necessarily correlate to truth or to integrity. You know, I spoke to a couple of scholars who really did not like his essay and more broadly were tired of the things that the essay seemed to speak to and represent in this establishment of academic history. And they were making the argument that history should be relevant and history should be used to try to make a more just and equitable world. And that research done through the enormous privilege of the ivory tower, being in these academic jobs and having the ability to go out and Try to create new knowledge that that shouldn't just be abstract and off by itself. You shouldn't just take refuge in writing your book and hope that somebody reads it and comes to a good conclusion, but rather historians should use their knowledge for good. They should go out and try to push back against bad history that's being pushed by politicians. They should push back on notions of history that are used to prop up white supremacy or prop up unjust systems like the carceral system. So you know, that perspective is there and it is defended by people who are well respected in the field and who have really ascended the ranks. And so I don't think Jim Sweet was tilting at windmills. I think he was arguing against something that's real, but I think it's hard sometimes to put words to it. It's hard sometimes to really put your finger on what exactly is it that historians are battling over. And, um, you know, who exactly stands on one side or the other? There's a lot of subtlety, I think here and And the spectrum of historians is is much more gray, perhaps than some of these debates might make it seem.
1: Wolf, we'll more with Emma Green in just a moment it seems like. There have always been progressive historians. You know, Sweet himself is, is a progressive historian. So I guess what is the difference between the kind of history that he is doing and the kind of, um, you know, history that he thinks is crossing the line because of how overtly political it has become?
0: It's certainly true that history has always had a politics. Uh, One of the professors I spoke with, David Blight, was quick to point that out and quick to point out that historians have often been advocates for the way that their history should be applied in contemporary life. And in fact, Jim Sweet, who is now at the University of Wisconsin, was trained by someone who was part of the New Left, which was a movement in history in the sort of middle, late 20th century to... um, think about the applications of history to these big questions of economics and culture and society, um, he is not separated from that. I think what Jim Sweet is identifying is a sense that especially younger historians, see the social justice problem, see the problem in society, the ideological problem, as the thing that they are aiming at. This is something I want to fix, and the history is in service of that broader political agenda rather than the history coming first, the evidence coming first, you follow the evidence where it leads, and then the conclusions being used for good, whatever good looks like to you. Now, of course, a lot of people in my reporting pointed out that every generation of historians has a problem with the new generation of historians. It's just in the nature of things for old buddy duddies to look out at the landscape of young radicals and think that they're taking things a little bit too far. But I I think what Jim is getting at is something really fundamental about the production of knowledge, which is in our times that are so polarized and so fractured when there is a real sense of urgency around justice and correcting historical wrongs that have permeated academic history forever from the use of archives to who was doing the history to who was considered to have a history. So many injustices and inequities have been part of the field for so long. There's a sense of urgency to correct those issues. But I think Jim is worried that that sense of urgency around American politics and around correcting historical injustices may come to displace a sense of fidelity to doing history for its own sake, to being open, to being surprised, and to have your politics contradicted in what you actually find. I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit more about
1: the the 1619 Project. And, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project, she maintains that it's supposed to be a work of journalism. But as you said earlier, it seems like it's become more of a sort of a popular history. It's something that is used in classrooms and, um, you know, curricula and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if you can talk about why, you know, it's been so influential and why it's become sort of like a boogeyman for the right.
0: I've reported a lot on the right and talked to people about the 1619 Project, and over and over again, I hear a critique of the 1619 Project as an ideological reframing of the American founding, trying to contradict or undermine anything that was good or that should be cherished in the foundations of American democracy, trying to undermine the credibility or worthiness of any of the founders of America because they were slaveholders. And in general, that it reframes American history too much around the legacy of slavery as the exclusive way that you can interpret the American story. That's the
1: goal of the project, right? I mean, isn't that kind of like the explicit, we're looking at the nation's founding through the lens of, of slavery and racism and how these things can't be, um, yeah, sort of like unraveled.
0: That's right. And I think that's ultimately why it's useful to remember that it is a work of journalism, although many academics contributed to it. It's trying to make an argument. It's a a writing, a series of essays that were published in the Times and now in this book that are trying to reframe stories in our history to reveal something, an arc, a sense of pattern around the legacy of slavery and racial discrimination and its connection to American democracy that is... um, Fundamentally, I think what magazine journalism does, it started out as an issue of the New York Times Magazine. And fundamentally, I think it's what some journalists do. It can be the the role of journalists. Jim Sweet, interestingly, who does not identify as being part of the right, who is a progressive, wrote a review of the 1619 Project in the American Historical Review. They did a big composium forum on 1619. And his argument, I thought, was actually pretty interesting, which is that 1619... Focused too much on Virginia and the original American colonies and didn't consider enough the way that the same slaves that were coming to Virginia were taken to Latin America and there were earlier slaves who were brought to what is now considered Florida. And the sort of identities of those slaves who were brought to America, arguably wasn't as early British subjects or early Americans, but rather people who are in diaspora, who are connected to people, other people in diaspora, who were all over Latin America and transcended in their identities and belief systems and communities, this sense of early nationhood that Nicole Hannah-Jones writes about, the formation of the American state. So in some ways, he says that she's too nationalist. She's too focused on America and she doesn't have a big enough lens of people who later became African-Americans. So a lot of the critiques of 1619 that come from the Academy actually, in my view, are surprising in that yeah,
1: way. That's fascinating. I feel like that's something that a lot of people, I mean you know, on the left, on the right, whether they like the 1619 Project, whether they don't, they would read that and, you know, respect it, assuming that sweet is able to, to back up his argument. It's not the kind of thing where it's just like, oh, this is just, you know, very selective and politically biased. Next.
0: Yeah. I will say, just to make sure that I'm representing multiple perspectives here, you know, the, the reception in the Academy for 1619 was not uniformly critical. There were definitely yeah big criticisms that were made, but a lot of academics thought that it was a hugely valuable work. Academics contributed to it and wrote essays. And the conversation that it has started around the real deep legacy of slavery in American history, I think a lot of academics think that that is hugely important and can be a jumping off point that is very productive for their work. So you know, it's not at all the Academy versus Nicole Hannah-Jones or the Academy versus journalism on 1619. I think though 1619 really has become this lightning rod for these questions about how much should academics get into the fray? How much should they be trying to reframe history and trying to provoke and trying to be part of this bigger conversation about popular knowledge, especially when, those bigger conversations are so fraught and so controversial and so wrapped up in the culture wars. Um, I think that's part of the debate here, too. So
1: after the 1619 Project um, sort of took off, um, Trump put together his 1776 commission. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the aims of that. Would you call it a committee or was it a commission? I'm wondering if the 1776 Project is something that Sweet would also criticize for you know, coming at history from you know, sort of this selective, biased approach?
0: I think Sweet wouldn't like the 1776 Commission. We didn't talk about it directly, but he was certainly critical of conservatives who have tried to use history to make their points. He talked in his essay about Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, the two Supreme Court justices, and criticized decisions that they made on guns and abortion. He has pointed to those kinds of Supreme Court decisions as evidence of this trend in our culture, in our society, to think that history is just a buffet table that you can pick from to support your pre-existing conclusion. And You know, I think with the 1776 Commission, there are different ways to talk about it. Certainly, academic historians were quite critical of the report that was eventually released. They were quite critical of President Trump and the way that he talked about history and tried to rally it for his own agenda. But there's a way of looking at the 1776 Commission, which is that they were doing what politicians and people who are trying to represent a political party often do, which is that they were telling a story about American history that supports the worldview and the argument that they believe. So, you know, there are arguments here to be made, but I think all of this just goes back to the broader debate, which is how do we know what is history as such? Evidence that's laid together in a way that's tried by an academic to have fidelity to the facts versus history that is being rallied to tell stories. Ultimately, I think we can't know because all history is stories. And the fact that some players and politics use those stories to their advantage, I think, is an inevitable part of our culture. It's an inevitable part of our political landscape. Um, I think Jim Sweet is just concerned that academics are getting sucked into that.
1: So, yeah, I mean, what does a Jim Sweet think that the role of the historian in society should be, um, if not, you know, someone who necessarily weighs in on every political debate and um, helps contribute an essay to the the 1619 Project or, you know, sits on the 1776 Commission? Like, what should they be doing?
0: Fundamentally, Jim Sweet thinks that historians are people who create new knowledge. They also disseminate that knowledge, but fundamentally, they're producers of new knowledge. They have a set of skills around the use of archives and documentary evidence that allows them to understand change over time. And moreover, they can identify big questions that have not been answered, ways that the historical record so far hasn't spoken to the histories of certain peoples or certain times or certain places and try to fill in some of that historical record. He is someone who has a politics. He is not scared of talking about his politics. And he is at times even willing to sort of say, this and that thing that I discovered was relevant for this and that big contemporary question. But ultimately, he doesn't think that historians should be the judges of the present who use the gavel of the past. He thinks that, they're people who help us to understand our past. And then it's up to the rest of us to figure out what to do about it. So, you know, this,
1: um, this idea that historians, you know, are interested in staying relevant, and they want to throw themselves in the fray and be influencers. I mean, is this all stuff that's happening on Twitter? What is the role of social media been in all of this?
0: Certainly Twitter is a huge part of this. The Jim Sweet essay blew up on Twitter. There's a whole Twitter community of historians. Yeah, Twitter historians, is that it? twitter historians. that's right. There's a whole cottage industry of professional historians who fact-check the news of the day. This was really big during the Trump era, especially. And historians of all kinds got involved in this. Some of them were prominent, prominent historians at Ivy League universities, and others were people who are PhD students or postdocs or people who are adjacent to academic history but don't necessarily have tenure track professor jobs. You know, I think there are other ways that this also has become an activity for historians, writing op-eds, being on the news. There have always been historians who have contributed to popular media, to magazines. But I think our culture, because history questions have become so fraught and so pointed in our politics, our culture has really looked to these experts to try to Figure out how to think about all of it. And sometimes that's really good because historians are people who are trained to think critically about historical questions, to answer them with nuance. But also it can mean that the profession gets sucked into the now.
1: And so in your piece, you talk to some people who make the argument that um this trend of historians getting, you know, sucked into Twitter, but also doing history and you know using like social justice as an entryway point. Basically, that there are ideological reasons for this, but there are also structural causes. And I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the structural causes, just the changes that are happening in the field, how history might be suffering as like an an academic field, like what these structural problems are that would potentially be solved by historians taking on this new role in society.
0: A lot of people pointed out to me that where some people see ideology, where Jim Sweet sees ideology, there are actually explanations that are a lot deeper. The big one is that there are no jobs. It's really hard for PhDs in history to get tenure track jobs. So it's a time when the field itself is a little bit in crisis. Um, Departments are having to slash classes that aren't as relevant feeling to students. It's harder to support than scholars who focus on areas that are not America or not contemporary issues because those often are the classes that students gravitate to the most. Um, The arguments that historians would make for history, for history's sake, are harder to make when they're bringing graduate students who are trying to figure out what the heck they're going to do with their PhD. And one off-ramp for that question, what the heck do I do with this PhD, is to get into the public conversation, to do public policy work, to do writing for the public, to be someone who's respected as an intellectual. Historians going on Twitter, that's a way of getting credit for your PhD. So I think this public conversation, the push of academic history into the public, is also tied to some of the structural breakdown in the field. So given all of that, do you think that
1: Jim Sweet is putting his energy into the correct or the most pressing cause right now? I mean, do you think that there's like another way that he can maybe go about solving some of these problems?
0: There are a lot of people I talked to who made that exact point. They wish that Jim Sweet had used his presidential columns to write about the structural problems in academia and times of austerity in academia. Um, he did have other columns that he wrote. They just didn't blow up on Twitter in the same way. And I don't think that he doesn't care about these problems or isn't aware of them. In fact, I think he is acutely aware of them and thinks that there need to be big shifts in PhD programs and the training of historians in order to account for this lack of jobs at the other end. But I also think that It's impossible to have one conversation without the other conversation, that you can't just talk about the ideological bent in history or the dominance of certain social justice frameworks in history without talking about the structural problems in the field. And you can't talk about the structural problems in the field without talking about the potential collapse of perspectives in academic history or the narrowness in the way that certain questions are asked in the academy and it's clear that there is a lot going on here that people feel very strongly about that's all wrapped up into a sense of crisis for the field
1: yeah and this question of um Student interest is so fascinating, too. Like, how much do you cater to that? How much do you have to cater to that? Like, I think that there's definitely an argument that if um, if kids are excited to learn about the 1619 Project, like if that's the thing that's going to get them to, um, you know, pay attention in history class, and that's an amazing thing. But on the the other hand, you know, I could definitely see the argument for, you know, forcing kids to learn about medieval history. I mean, is that kind of where we're, we're landing that, you know, it's fine to just focus on American history or African American history?
0: Listen, it is way above my pay grade. To what should people determine learn? Determine <laughs> what all students should be learning about all of history. Uh, but I will say that I think that the sense that Jim Sweet has of people feeling that they're sucked into American history, sucked into the present, towards 20th and 21st century American history, the sense that students have of urgency around their political moment, it is both real and can be something to watch, to keep an eye on, to make sure that our polarization doesn't become the template for education and it doesn't determine what people end up learning either in high school or in college, because ultimately we're in this cyclical moment where the more that we fixate on culture war issues, the more that we fixate on the now, on America rather than the rest of the world, the less able we are to break out of this cycle of feeling like we're in urgency and crisis and polarization. So, you know, I think that certainly teaching history with a broader lens for more times and more places is important for opening students' eyes, how exactly that happens and the way that that looks in college classrooms and in history departments that are already under a lot of pressure, that's the question that I think is far beyond me to be able to resolve. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Tyler.
1: Emma Green is a staff writer at The New Yorker who writes about education and politics. You can read The Right Side of History on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Sydney Cobb. Our executive producer is Steven Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Thank you so much for listening.